Asia Pacific currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest、uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at nine o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Link. Good morning, good morning, dear listeners. That's right. This is Asia Pacific Currents, brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links every Saturday here at nine o'clock in the morning on your favourite community radio station, Three CR Radio. My name is Pierre Morrow. And I'll be taking you until half past nine this morning. I'll be flying solo as Giselle's not here for the next、um, two weeks, but she did leave a、uh, interview, and I'll talk that in a second. But if you want to get in touch with Australia Asia Workerlings, you can just go to our Facebook site or our website, which are being、um, redeveloped, but there's still lots of information there. And thanks to Annie and the team for another interesting solidarity breakfast program. And that song was by Kutcher Edwards. Is this what we deserve? Now,、um, as、uh, we promised last week, we we're going to bring you a、uh, interview. It's actually quite an extended interview、uh, on uh, Yemen. Uh, so the, that's going to take up most of the program. Now, as people would know, that、um, uh, Yemen, and we've mentioned that before,、uh, is being described as the worst humanitarian crisis in the world.、Um, it really.、Um, <coughs> The the roots,、um, well, the recent roots of it、um, come from the、uh, fact that the Houthi movement,、um, a, a religious political armed movement,、uh, emerged、uh, in northern Yemen in the 1990s and eventually got stronger and took the capital, Sana, in 2014 in a complex civil war situation. But that now has uh, developed. Uh, Um, uh, into a more complicated uh, regional uh, fight for supremacy with、uh, different countries in there. Um, Giselle um, Hannah was able to interview Camilla El Ariani, who、um, is originally from Yemen and is teaching in sociology and politics at the、um, Melbourne University and RMIT here in Melbourne. So、um, we'll hear、uh, Camilla、um, in a、um, in about a minute time starting the interview. The interview is long; is going to go for the whole program. So we will actually cut it in half. So we will have a bit of a break in the middle. And the only item of、uh, news that I really want to say、um, is that、uh, this week、um, we had a sad loss here for our movement here in Melbourne. We、uh, unexpectedly lost a comrade this week with the passing of Mr. Barman Yusufi. Barman was an organizer in the Iranian Workers Solidarity Group here in Melbourne, Australia. Um, Barman、uh, had a very strong working class politics, often being seen at various workers' demonstrations around our city. Barman was a firm believer in uniting workers globally, and was always ready to show his solidarity with workers in struggle everywhere. Our deep condolences go to his family, friends, and comrades.、Um, Barman Yusufi, we will continue your work, and we will、uh, continue to be in solidarity with workers everywhere, and especially the heroic、uh, Iranian working class. 
Uh, it's just on three past nine o'clock. Um, we'll go straight to the interview. So this is an interview that was conducted by uh, Giselle Henna with uh, Camilla L. Ariani, who's a lecturer here at Melbourne uh, University in RMIT about the, the complex uh, and deep uh, social, historical and political issues in Yemen. Uh, they have a very long, they have a, a long history uh, in Yemen, and they're also connected to Zaidi Imamid that ruled the north until 1962. Uh, but the Houthi as a, a political movement, it was a very kind of, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a recent thing. Originally, it originated uh, in Fada in 1980, 19, um, 1990s, as a, initially as a theological uh, uh, movement, and it was uh, in a response to uh, uh, some sort of uh, theological harassment by Saudi Arabia because uh, Houthis, um, their stronghold was Fada, and Fada is, in the, uh, is uh, located closer to the Yemeni-Saudi borders. So, I mean, because of Saudi um, kind of perpetual sense of paranoia, so they, they started to harass them as, uh, um, kind of um, through theology by funding certain um, uh, certain Wahhabi teaching, which was basically a Saudi style, uh, the House of Saudi style of Wahhabism. Um, and it was not until 1992 when the um, multi-electoral uh, system was introduced after the unification that Houthis uh, um, uh, um, kind of uh, took the form of a political party, uh, Hizb al-Haq, or uh, the party of Haq. And uh, they participated in a, in a, in a, in a, in a political uh, kind of uh, opposition, kind of normal through the political system. Um, and then um, in 2000, I think in 2004, the, uh, the, uh, the leader of the, the political leader of the movement, Hassan Badruddin al-Houthi uh, started to kind of raise some sentiment against the the government. Again, it's also marginalization as well. So the the uh, the Yemeni regime, led by Saleh, kind of uh, um, waged uh, the six war against them from 2004 until 2010. 2010, Saudi Arabia also intervened, kind of participated in the operations against the Houthis. Um, and then we, um, and, and then until 2011, um, I mean, of course, the regime took advantage of the entire war of terror, um, you know, kind of Saudi uh, anxiety about Iran. So he kind of also um, exaggerated the threat of the Houthis, you know, to get some sort of support, financial support, as well as military support, because this, this, this was the way that the Yemeni state itself kind of uh, survived through, through military aid. Eight because it was, uh, um, it formed a big part of the kind of regional uh, security um, um, security policies and security strategies. So in 2011, uh, when the uprising, the Yemeni uprising joined, you know, other uprisings in Tunis, Tunisia, and Egypt, um, and uh, Syria, um, the Houthis joined the uh, the popular uprising, and they they. Uh, they uh, they had their own tents in uh, Tahrir Square and everything, and probably in most of the governorates. And then we had the national dialogue after the uh, the, the uprising was curtailed. There was this uh, political settlement, 
that was concocted by Saudi Arabians and Western powers as well as the national elites. And here and I'm talking about the national elites, we're talking about the two uh, major parties, uh, the Congress uh, uh, people, um, uh, um, which was was led by uh, Saleh, and then the joint meeting parties, which which is a mixed bag of Islamists, Marxists, socialists, uh, and Nasrites, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so when they jo- joined, so they joined the uh, the Houthis joined the uh, the, the the dialogue, and. Uh, and then again, as 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 the process, political process in Yemen. I mean, of course, in Yemen, the political process has never been independent. It's been always uh, shaped by regional politics and international politics. So <clears throat> uh, the Houthis were asking, demanding more equal equal share that to, to be included uh, in the political process in Yemen. Uh, but as that it has always happened, uh, we ended up. We ended up kind of uh, dividing the power between the two major parties. The same thing, GBC and uh, and the uh, joint meeting parties. And uh, and then there was it was not until 2014 that the old regime, uh, Saleh Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, allied with the Houthis. And um, and the Saleh has been in power. He had been in power by then for 35, 33 years. He knows the entire system through and through. So he uh, um, he kind of uh, facilitated uh, the uh, the the takeover of Sanaa for the Houthis. But of course, that was uh, that was uh, part of Saleh's agenda for a vengeance because he was like one of the most kind of trusted uh, U.S. Uh, allies, and and also Saudi Arabia was one of the Saudi allies. Um, uh, allies in the war and terror, but also kind of who was the one one of the uh, uh, people. People, I mean, Saudi Arabia did not really trust him, but it was still someone that Saudi Arabia could rely on him uh, sometimes. So he felt betrayed, and uh, collaborating with Houthis um, um, was part of his mostly kind of a vengeance. Of course, that kind of thing has changed afterwards when the war started. But this is this is who the the Houthis are basically, kind of in a nutshell. That was a very uh, detailed uh, but complicated story of what is happening in Yemen. It looks like there are quite a lot of different political interests intersecting with um, some. Uh, organic political movements that erupted in the region. I mean, you yeah. did talk about uh, the the um, coincidence, I guess, of um, this, this war between the Houthis and what looks like, actually, Saudi Arabia and a little bit the government of Yemen. Um, but then the coincidence of the uprisings across the rest of the Middle East intersecting with some of this conflict. Um, I, I, it might not be simple to pull apart all of this detail and I guess the events of history never really look like that anyway. But Saudi Arabia is a significant player in this war. Some people want to describe it as a civil war. It isn't, at least based on your description. But of course, Saudi Arabia formed a coalition to defeat the Houthis um, uh, 
I'm presuming it is because of um, the inherent opposition the Houthis have theologically to the state of um, Saudi Arabia. But who did Saudi Arabia bring into the coalition to try to defeat the Houthis? And why have they joined the coalition? What are their other interests that bring them into this coalition with Saudi Arabia? Yeah, um yeah, I think one point that I, uh, I think it's very important to kind of phrase here is that the conflict has nothing to do with religion. Uh, one of the things that also kind of, it's all politics, it's pure pure politics, um, political interest. Uh, the Saudi Arabia supported uh, the, uh, the the royalists, like, you know, where, uh, who, who were actually kind of, uh, the, the, who were Zaydis in 1962 when the Republic, and also this is one of the things that probably um, it's very important also to kind of to point out that Yemen is the only republic in, a, uh, in, a, in, in the Arabian Peninsula among the six monarchies. So, uh, so Saudi Arabia supported the, royal, the, the royalists who were Zaydis uh, in 1996 and then accepted the government afterwards and recognized it after, after, after engaging in seven years of civil war with Egypt in Yemen. Yemen was a proxy. So the thing is, yeah, it is, is like Yemen in itself, in and of itself, has never been a really a big, a big, uh, it doesn't have an, imp- it never had an import- any importance uh, as, a, um, as either a nation or, you know, especially here we're talking about humanitarian interventions and humanitarian concerns. Yemen has never, as the human factor in Yemen has never, has uh, never been figured uh, in, the, uh, in the history of the foreign policy of Yemen uh, since the, the Cold War. Yemen has been, Yemen has always been figured in the U.S. foreign policy or in the lexicon in, the, in U.S. foreign policy as a problem or as a crisis. And that is, uh, that is, of course, because it's the strategic problem, uh, the strategic location, but also there are other kind of uh, hush-hush kind of news about that there is actually untapped, uh, one of the biggest uh, untapped reserves of oil uh, between Yemen and at the borders between Yemen and Saudi Arabia. But, um, I mean, there are now lots of, uh, uh, lots of parties who are involved. Of course, the U.S. is uh, number one, who's uh, uh, helping, uh, kind of uh, providing weapons, but also providing all of these logistics, logistics and money, many other kind of uh, military support and training. There's the U.K., there's France. Those are some of the biggest providers of, uh, of uh, weapons. There, is, uh, there are other kind of Middle Eastern countries, uh, Egypt, uh, we're talking about um, uh, Emirates, we're talking about uh, um, Emirates now is also kind of uh, uh, is deeply involved. And there is, uh, again, if we want to understand the, uh, uh, the conflict that is happening in a more geopolitical uh, kind of uh, um, view, um, it seems that uh, what is now it is it is the the, uh, the issue is about who is going to control the Red Sea and the ports on the Red Sea, and uh, it seems like it has something to do with the uh, China military expansion in Africa, and uh, also the kind of uh, um, the uh, the the uh, which is uh, like the, the the military expansion, of course, to protect um, uh, China's economic expansion in this region. So it seems like, uh, um, uh, of course, uh, Emirates and Saudi Arabia are the ones, the main parties, 
who are uh, already kind of involved and they created uh, different factions, um, kind of prisons, um, you know. So it is like, it's like almost kind of a a modern form of colonialism in a sense. um, you know, kind of, uh, there is there is a lot of uh, a lot of involvement, uh, and they they want their their interest is to control basically. So uh, Emirates wants to control the ports, especially as part of the uh, international. It's like Dubai, uh, Dubai. Uh, what was the name of it? It's Dubai um, Company, like port company, which is in I don't charge. know the name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and Saudi Arabia, of course, it's uh, they want. It's about also kind of uh, extending a pipe, oil pipe that they they want to extend it through Yemen to the Arabian Ocean, so they don't have to deal with Iran and the Persian Gulf because this is also some of the the things that they the points that is strate- strategic interest that Iran and Saudi Arabia have been kind of using uh, or their politics intentions been pl- played out, uh, and uh, that you know Iran one day might block. Uh, um, kind of the shipment of oil from the Persian Persian Gulf. So Saudi Arabia wants to secure uh, a more kind of, uh, um, you know, a, a path or a pipe through Yemen so they don't have to deal with uh, with Iranian um, kind of uh, threat or possibility to uh, uh, to go or to, uh, to, you know, exercise its authority and capability to, to stop shipment or shipment because um, you know, there is uh, lots going on about interest, oil interest, military interest. Hey, you, you who are listening, we haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website, 3cr.org.au, or call us on 9419 and give us some support. Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you. It's just on uh, 17 past 9 o'clock here on 3CR Radio. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links every week at 9 o'clock. We'll go um, straight back to the second part of the interview that Giselle Hanna did with uh, Camilla Eriani on the issues um, and the civil war and the war in Yemen. Well, uh, is there much play... Uh, by organised terrorist groups? Where does um, uh, ISIL or Al-Qaeda, where are their interests? Because, I I mean, if we are talking about Syria, if we are talking about Iraq, if we are talking about the Arabian Peninsula, how can we have this conversation without talking about ISIL and Al-Qaeda? Well, look. I mean, the thing is, is that in, uh, in in Yemen, it's even like if you talk to ordinary people, they will tell you that Al Qaeda was basically uh, was one of the tools that the regime used um, to kind of extract funds from the West because that was the only way. Because Yemen economy that has to do with the Yemen Yemeni economy was made very, very, very I mean, like um, over the years, it was made very vulnerable, very dependent on uh, on uh, on uh, extraction of aid. Uh, and security aid and economic aid from the Gulf countries and from the U.S. So uh, after the first Gulf War, the uh, the Yemen had been most of the uh, uh, labor Yemeni labor was um, expelled, and that was the Yemeni economy depended pretty much on uh, on uh, on the remittance and also assistance from Saudi Arabia. When Yemen opposed the uh, U.S. intervention in Iraq, uh, the Gulf countries stopped the aid. 
they uh, they sent old labor uh, back home, and then the economy crippled basically. So the war in terror became in itself as an opportunity for the regime to kind of keep the state going, because we're here we're talking about an economy that is weak and dependent. It was made, it was not kind of innately. It was all these complex policies that the 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 US and Saudi Arabia applied to make sure that the Yemen would never be independent. And uh, even exploration of oil was very, very managed in a very, uh, uh, in a very narrow way to make sure that the country would never be economically independent, thus politically, given that it's the only republic. So for the state to survive, for the regime to survive, you want to call it the regime, uh, they had to use to exaggerate Al-Qaeda problem and, uh, and even sometimes orchestrate. Uh, so here, this is I'm talking about until 2012 and 2013, when the regime was still there. Um, now, what is happening? The uh, are there all these groups? Kind of, there are not just uh, the, not Al Qaeda. There is a, there is Al Qaeda. There is ISIS. There is there is the kind of many 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 groups operating there. There is also uh, the uh, Al Hirak. There is uh, many. I mean, I, I can't count them. But now we're talking about a. Uh, uh, a civil, a civil, a civil tension, a civil war, which which was uh, created because of the international war. So any group will will find the uh, the the chaotic situation, you know, very ideal to uh, to uh, uh, um, uh, to thrive. And in amongst all of this, all of the complexity of these difficult of these political interests, we are witnessing one of the world's most egregious human, humanitarian crises ever. Tell us what is happening from a humanitarian point of view while these interests are fighting the war. What is happening to the people of Yemen? Well, uh, what is happening is outrageous. It's unspeakable, and uh, I mean there is a blockade. Um, in, in the country, nothing is allowed in. And as I as I mentioned, the uh, the um, the the country's economy was systematically uh, kind of uh, made very fragile and vulnerable, uh, very dependent on imports. Yemen, they don't, we don't grow. There is uh, there is uh, the, the Yemen does not is not um, uh, like the agricultural system. It was uh, kind of systematically again um, kind of uh, um, disrupted because of all these kind of different policies. So Yemen, uh, until the war, depended, like almost 90-90% of, of the economy depended on imports. So we were not self-sufficient in any form or shape. So when the war erupted, so that, that meant basically the deaths. You know, it's like you're putting, you're putting a population in a, uh, in a concentration camp and that's it. There is no sources, there is no no industries, there is nothing that they can actually rely on. Even if there were any at all, you know, the, the, the campaign, the uh, they targeted every single uh, in, uh, uh, infrastructure, either civilian or military. Um, even the small factories, you know, that we had, like we had probably a couple of factories, uh, they, uh, they were bombarded. So, uh, so the uh, so they targeted hospitals, they targeted schools, they targeted even residential residential areas. So it was a, a, a discriminated targeting. Um, so and then there is no medication. 
Um, we're talking about a country whose uh, medical system is already, you know, it's not, it's not one of the best at all. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, vulnerable uh, kind of health system. And here we're talking about before the war. Uh, imagine now what is happening after the war when there is nothing, what, nothing no medical equipment, uh, um, equipment are allowed in. There's no electricity, there is no water, there's a, 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 an, an endemic of cholera. Uh, thousands and thousands of people are dying. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you see lots of all these figures, but, um, you know, all these figures, it was like for three, for three years uh, with an ongoing uh, bombardment, and lots of casualties, the number 10,000 figures all the way through without changing. So that tells you that the, 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 amount, the, the, um, uh, the disaster itself or the, uh, the size of the disaster has, has never been or it, it, will, it will probably never make it into numbers. Um, and, and that is, uh, of course, again, it's part of the politics. You, you just keep the number for five, six years as the same. So you don't, you don't uh, show the world how, the, how, how disastrous the situation is. Um, I mean, of course, there is the number now started to change slightly, but uh, the, the fact is that the situation is so bleak. Uh, and uh, and all kind of aspects of human uh, of humanity you know human aspects and uh, we still don't know really kind of uh, the uh, I mean there are some research now going on now the there are some research uh, relying on more local researchers who are started to collect more systematically more accurate data but most of the data that are kind of presented by international organizations that until last year they lacked all accuracy. Um, and we could not account, you know, for the amount and the size of the human disaster happening there. How will this end? What is the solution? What is the answer to the crisis in Yemen? Well, look, I mean, uh, Yemen has, is, is very well equipped with all the kind of uh, uh, um, the politics, the uh, the culture, the, um, you know, the kind of the social, the social uh, kind of fabric that can allow a Yemeni uh, kind of uh, um, a Yemeni solution, you know, a solution which is created by Yemenis themselves, and uh, you know the history show demonstrated that in 2000, in 1961, when the uh, civil war erupted, the uh, there was lots of mediation between between the tribes and between the Republicans, either kind of uh, tribes or non-tribal. And they found their own solution. They've got the system in place. I mean, of course, now it must have been affected with the, with what is happening. But uh, Yemenis are capable of finding their own solution, and they will. They, they everybody has to be included. Houthi now is is a political power that needs to be recognized. They cannot just say that they are rebels or uh, militia. I mean, this is if they keep saying that they basically they're not. There's no. Uh, uh, once you keep describing an important and significant political party as a criminal, it means that you don't want a solution. They are. This is the reality on the ground. They are there, so they a political solution has to include include them, and it has to be kind of an unequal uh, grounds. And uh, I mean, of course, the thing is that um, uh, the war will end only when the uh, important big uh, powers like the U.S. decides that. The war, uh, it's no longer fits its own interest or it does, it's not, it's not uh, for, for its own interest to keep the war going. But the way things are going now, and uh, it seems like uh, Iran, there is now some kind of uh, 
signals that there might be a war against Iran. So um, it might be, uh, it might, it might, this might mean that the war might just continue. And uh, and again, yes, the the solution uh, there was no there was the kind of negotiation, but again, like the previous negotiations, there were no serious intention to end the war, and it was again part of a more kind of uh, um, you know bigger kind of uh, more uh, complex game. Let's put it put it that way. I mean, what is politics? Politics is mostly the game. Um, um, you know, because of uh, after the death of Khafiqji and uh, um, Saudi Arabia put itself in a very bad position. Um, so, you know, after especially after U.S. trying to groom Mohammed bin Salman, especially if there was a move towards creating kind of a security pact within the Middle East that can be attached to a larger uh, Euro- uh, American and European security uh, security um, policy. Uh, so, what, whatever kind of the reaction um, uh, after the, uh, the assassination of Khajiqi kind of uh, um, disrupted, you know, that kind of larger, larger plan. So, these negotiations, if I, if I'm, you know, if I'm right, they were just to kind of um, to clean the house um, for the next chapter. But uh, from um, you know, from what is happening in the uh, in the ground and also the regional international uh, arena, it seems like um, the war is still going to go for a while. Camilia, thank you so much for your time on the program today. Was there anything you wanted to add? I do kind of. I've always have you know people asking me about uh, about Yemen and what do I think. I really I find it very hard for me to talk about it because uh, the level of injustice. Uh, which is happening, and uh, you know, for instance, people who've got nothing, who who are really aspiring for nothing but just, you know, a peaceful life with little dignity. You know, um, it's uh, it's heartbreaking. So um, I really hope and I pray that the end, the the war ends sometime soon. And yeah, I mean, they, you cannot kind of rely or ask for that kind of uh, a moral intervention because it just does not exist anymore. It's all about the interests of the powerful and the poor is always. Um, you know, always abandoned. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. You were listening to an interview that Giselle Hanna did earlier this week with Camilla El Ariani from the uh, lecturer in teaching sociology and politics at Melbourne University in RMIT. She's uh, uh, from Yemen herself about the ongoing uh, conflict and the roots of the conflict and the international dimension of the war in Yemen. That's really all that we've got um, time for. We've come to the end of uh, another show of Asia Pacific Currents brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. My name is Pierre Morrow. We'll be back with you uh, next week for another uh, roundup and look at the labour issues of uh, the Asia-Pacific region. But stay tuned to 3CR Radio for the uh, Palestine Remembered show. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. 
Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power radical podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.